Any other problems you guys want to solve tonight? <laughs> How do we engage with our bed? <laughs> cool. Go uh, back to the silence, baby. It's <laughs> <laughs> sounding pretty easy right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unless I get next to someone who's snoring. <laughs> I'll reach over and say, hey, yeah. practice silence. I need you, need you to practice your silence a little more quietly. <laughs> podcast i'm your host jeremiah jones and i'm here with uh three other friends hi friends hello hey how's hello, it going friend. yes yes we have this new mobile setup that we're testing out and it's late and we're all tired and mm. this is the best time to record though because all the funny crazy wild things come out of our minds and all slap happy uh, yeah stuff. exactly <laughs> yeah exactly um so I think we'll have to do we'll a, have lot a of good editing. time here. To, <laughs> we'll have to do a whole lot of editing. <laughs> That's usually the case anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, great. Uh, so we're here with, uh, let's just go around the table. So we'll start with the person in front of me. Hi, I'm Josh Huckabay from College Heights Christian Church, and I've been the worship minister there for seven years. My name is Creighton Tamarius. Um, I'm at First Baptist Church in Sarcoxy, and I've been there for four years. Uh, this is Corey Scott. Northside Christian Church in Springfield, Missouri. Been there almost almost 16 years. I'm Jeremiah Jones. I already introduced myself that way, but I'm a worship pastor and youth pastor currently at a church in Sepulpa, Oklahoma, uh, Cedar Ridge Christian Church. Been there for a little over a year now. Uh, and so we're here literally at the uh, Respond Worship Retreat. This is our Respond Worship Retreat podcast. Uh, so we are going to discuss this topic of engaging. Um, Josh led the night tonight with a topic, uh, engaging with God. So that might be a good place to start. And uh, maybe we can just kind of recap some of uh, what we talked about tonight and then just kind of see where the conversation goes from there. Well, the, the, you know, the main premise of what I was trying to say is for some reason we have characteristically started to prefer finding God in the spectacular rather than looking for him in the ordinary. And for some reason we think that the ordinary is, is not good enough for God or that God can't be found there. And that the places he really wants to show up are, are really big things, really spectacular things. And so, uh, the Lord, when I was preparing this message brought to mind, uh, that story of Elijah meeting God on the mountain. And uh, as I dug into the story, there was so many things that just kept popping out to me that really just confirmed that suspicion I had had um, about how it is that we define engaging God. Um, and and Elijah does what we do. He He was a guy who wanted to do big things for God, spectacular things for God. We do too. But we end up often just, you know, figuring out how a way to find the next spectacular thing. And uh, so when Elijah goes to this mountain and he expects God to be in the wind and the earthquake and the fire and he's not. 
in those things, those spectacular things, those outrageous things, those big things. Instead, he's in that normal, small, quiet voice, the sheer sound of silence. And so we just we just talked tonight about what that means for us um, as worshipers, you know, as worship leaders, and and letting letting God use the ordinary. Um, in our life to show to show us himself um, and really, you know, get to this place where we understand that in order to see the spectacular, we actually have to, we have to embrace the ordinary. So uh, I think that's, that's the proper order of things. That's the way God's designed it. You know, this is, this is the incarnation of Jesus, the extraordinary God becomes completely ordinary and and yet through that ordinariness there is this spectacular love and grace that is given to everybody so that's kind of a my quick synopsis of what we talked about i'm interested to hear from you guys i i i want to actually launch a question and this is i think for everybody because i'm i just feel like the first as you were talking even now to summarize my first thought was what is it that has attributed to that mindset in our culture and even in our worship ministries that that gets us to that point where we feel like it's it's got to be bigger and better there's something that's feeding that um what'd you call it the spanking machine yeah yeah <laughs> the, grind, the spanking machine the grind yeah. week after week after week what is it that feeds that so i'm just curious what you guys think on that well, we can try and achieve the spectacular ourselves, especially in our our uh, form of vocation. We can try and and create a spectacular thing, but um, it's a lot harder to to do that in the ordinary. And and probably I don't kind of live in that. I don't know. Is is we we uh, we may think ordinary is boring, and it may be to some extent. We don't get we think we don't get to live out our creativity when it's. It's the not the opposite of that, but I mean, it's you can have both, and and I always I always wonder if our spectacular, when we are living in the ordinary, is our what we view as spectacular change, and um, is it kind of change what we view as as that? But that's what I was thinking the the whole time is, is is my view of spectacular? Is it change as I'm getting better at the ordinary? Absolutely. I guess my question would be. Um, would we expect anything less from a culture that is constantly becoming like a culture that is constantly finding a way to outdo or progress in a, in a different way? Um, and I don't think we can expect anything from the greater cultural narrative, you know, but, uh, but it's different for us as Christians. Um, we know, as you, you know, explained tonight, I mean, that God is in the still quiet you know, stillness, those, those quiet moments. And those are the times that we need to, um, seek after. Um, cause those are the times where we, we are refreshed and we are renewed. Um, yeah. I think that, yeah, I think I'm with you, Jeremiah, on that, in that what feeds that is, you know, right there at our fingertips is a whole world of people's best foot forward. We're constantly seeing everyone else's best foot forward and it's so easy to play that comparison game. And I remember Chip Ingram saying this one time in a Bible study. He said, um, comparison always leads to carnality. Always. 
it always leads to carnality. Every time we start to compare ourselves to someone that we feel is better than us, it leads to carnality, flesh, fleshliness, you know, worldliness. Every time we compare ourselves to someone who we think is lower than us, that leads to worldliness, you know, and we play that comparison game so quick. Um, and all that stuff is just right there. So handy. So I don't know, you know, it's, um, which is a little funny because even in our last episode, you know, we talked about, it's okay to learn from other people and to watch videos and to, to see what you like about other leader worship leaders and teams and try to emulate that. If you feel like that's going to be helpful for your church. Um, but uh, there's a line there, you know, because uh, you don't want to compare, yeah. you just want to learn. Well, it took me a while after my home church and then interning at College Heights, once I started at church I'm at now, to realize the end goal for me is not College Heights. And it's not not forum for me. Like that's not, I'm not trying to build to that. I need to figure out what what our church, what is worshipful to our church? What does that mean? And But the only thing I I knew or I thought I knew was, well, I've got to replicate what I've seen in other healthy churches. And I took a lot from it, but um, I wasn't trying to just replicate that. And I think that's pretty easy to see is when you're trying to force something in and and no one will probably engage with that as well. It's kind of interesting thinking about culturally how this how this relates and why why I think it's actually such an important it's an important lesson for us to learn right now. I had a, a seminary professor who talked about how the kinds of entertainment that are being produced now, movies and things like that, we have this entire retro culture because we've actually started to believe that we can't imagine how life could be any better than it is right now. We have ascended in such a way in the West, in Western culture, um, that we can't imagine life being any better than it than it is in this present moment. And so when you look at movies, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're reboots of old movies that have been produced and they're, but even when they are, a lot of times they're kind of set in this post-apocalyptic, it's the end of the world. Mm. We can't imagine a world that's better than the one that we currently have. So it just has to be the end of the world and people are figuring out how to live, you know, within that. So I think there's, I think that's a, there's something there culturally. We actually need to tap into that. Yeah. But what is it just like to live day in and day out? And, you know, you don't hear as much about people who have the same job for 50 years and they just, they get up and they go to work and they work their eight to five and they come home and you just don't hear about that anymore. Not to say it's not out there cause it is, but there's something about that though, mm-hmm. that we're, we're trying to stay away from. It's not flashy. It's not sexy. Um, it doesn't scream at us. It, it sounds boring. It sounds mundane. And it's like that, but that, like our connotation with that is, you know, that it's bad. Yeah. I, uh, I was going to chime in here. I, I think I've talked about it before, uh, but Brene Brown talks about the idea of scarcity. And I think that's what plays into a lot of what we're talking about as well is that we're constantly seeing what others have and, uh, we're, we're wanting that, you know, social media hasn't helped that at all. <laughs> um, 
but I mean, just on a daily basis, I mean, drive down the road and you're driving a perfectly good car, you know, but you see another car you're like, Oh, <laughs> I would, I wouldn't mind having that. It's like, well, I have a perfectly good car. Why, why do I want that one? Or, or guitar. Yeah. Guitar. Yeah. Guitar. I was about <laughs> to say that. Never had that. Yeah. And so we're, we're constantly looking at what other people have instead of being content. Mm-hmm. And you were talking a lot about contentment. I mean, that's, that's what plays into a lot of what we're talking well, about as well. It's gotta be stressful that if we are at the best and people are like, well, I'm still feeling emptiness. Like if we are the so-called best it's going to get, I mean, that's what Tom Brady several years ago, he'd won his third Super Bowl at the point. He's like, there's got to be more than this. And so it's got to be stressful that we've hit the best it is and I still feel empty. And yeah, that's probably why there's such a, you know, the anxiety rate and level is unprecedented, you know, in history like it is right now. And, you know, I feel it personally a lot. I don't know about you guys. I, I, even as you were sharing tonight, Josh, I was thinking even just in, within my own marriage, how there's a, there's a comfort level of the mundane or the ordinary where I actually really truthfully enjoy coming home from the office saying, how was your day? Or, you know, my wife would ask me, how was your day? And my answer is, oh, you know, kind of normal, normal stuff. And that is all I have to say. Um, I mean, I like talking about my day. I like telling her what happened, but there's a piece in that, that I can just go, ah, it's kind of normal, normal stuff. And we don't have to say anything. There's a, there's a point in a relationship. I don't have to produce anything. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to direct anything, push it. I can just be with her. And I feel like that is kind of where you landed tonight, where what does the the sound of silence the sheer sound of silence what is that and i think you you landed at just it has more to do with just presence and being than producing anything striving after the spectacular and i really appreciated that because i i feel like i i sense that in my marriage can i sense that in my ministry the whole time you're talking i was thinking of um a few summers ago, I read Practicing the Presence of God, my brother Lawrence, and I'm like, man, that's that's it. And he went from being in the French army to being a lay brother, did dishes, <laughs> moved on to fixing shoes. And and we went through kind of a prayer series at our church, and, and he'd said that uh, you need not look far for God because he's closer than you than you think, but he's where we don't, maybe the closer is the, <laughs> the difficult part is we don't want him that close. And um. Yeah, that's I mean that's the whole thing. I was thinking, I was like, man, he, brother Lawrence was perfect at this. And, and. It, it's it's interesting that the I've thought about this before that within liturgical traditions, the the church calendar actually is very informative about this because you have all these seasons. You know, be, the church calendar begins with Advent. And you move from Advent into Christmas tide and from Christmas tide into Epiphany and so on and so forth. But you know what the longest season of the church calendar is, the liturgical calendar? It's called ordinary time. Mm-hmm. And we just forget that. You know, we we oh, we can't wait until Christmas. We can't wait until Advent. We can't wait until Pentecost. We can't, you know, we can't wait until Lent. Oh, but the longest one. Is just the ordinary time. Pentecost to Advent. Pentecost to Advent. It's like there's something to be learned there that the that even the saints who have gone before us understood. 
if everything is special, nothing is. Mm -hmm. And the ordinary gives us boundaries for the spectacular. Otherwise, everything's spectacular, you know? And so I think there's even a piece of, this is, this is a divine, divine method that God has set up for us to just walk and live. And then sometimes something happens and it's like, whoa, what was that? You know, and it kind of shocks us and it gets our attention. And But if we're constantly being stimulated with something like that, you're numb to anything that's less than that. And it always requires more. I, one of my iterations of this message, I had something about spiritual addiction in there because that's, it's really what it is. We get addicted to the exceptional, to the spectacular, and we've got to figure out how to get our next fix. And the problem is now is like, we have the opportunity in the palm of our hands and in our pockets always. Well, here we are at Maranatha Bible Camp, you know, and I grew up going to this camp. And so you come away and we always talk about the spiritual high. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Camp high. Yep. You know, because that's that's what we used to equate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't remember what, I think it was Worship Matters. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Or is, or is the it, Heart of Worship, where he it, talks about the Doritos and uh, Mountain Dude. Uh, oh, no, that's uh, that's the Book, Bath, Table, and Time. That, yeah, that's it. Yeah. By Fred Eady. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, getting that spiritual high, it's a lot, it's equivalent to Doritos and, and Mountain Dew, uh, yeah. cause you get that high and then you have that hard crash later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And you can't live off that. <laughs> right. No That's one can live right. off of Doritos and Mountain Dew. Right. Like you'll die within weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just watch Supersize Me, you know, <laughs> the documentary. It's like, that's the equivalent of it. But it's like, what, if, what if we're doing that in terms of our spirituality? What if we're doing that? as worship leaders to our churches, we're giving people Mountain Dew and Doritos every weekend when they need real food. I feel like there's some biblical writer who talked about needing real food and not just like spiritual milk or. No, that was Bob Goff. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Oh, that's yeah. right. You're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, now it makes me think of, uh, I, Josh, I've I've given you credit for this before. He had uh, th- this book uh, by Sandra Van Opstel called The Mission of Worship. I know you recommended this book to me, and I read it, and it's great. And uh, she talks about that worship leaders are good hosts. They're hosts. And just like a good host would do, when someone comes t- to your town to visit you, you want to give them what they want. And uh, so in her case, she lives in Chicago, so everyone gets pizza. You know, because that's what they want. You come to Chicago, you get pizza. But uh, then she says, but a good host will also give them what they didn't know they needed. And that in Chicago, this she mentions this Puerto Rican sandwich. You know, it's not just pizza. You need this sandwich, you know. And I just think in worship, we give people what they want because we love people. We shepherd people. If they have an ex, a, 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 you know, a certain kind of expectation for a Sunday morning experience, it's okay to serve them and love them and give it to them. But then at the same time, we also need to give them what they didn't know they needed. And probably what they need is something like what we've been talking about here. A little bit of some of that ordinary experience with God doesn't have to be flashy, just just real. There's a lot of implicit teaching that happens. Um, 
in in our current kind of church subculture, worship subculture, that I think perpetuates this problem a lot. And uh, because we actually, we plan services uh, trying to create a unique experience of the presence of God. That's what we're trying to do. And so then we shouldn't be surprised when people show up every Sunday. And then when they don't get that, they don't find that spectacular moment, then they're frustrated. Well, it's like, well, yeah, that's on them, but it's also on us because we, we keep furthering it. We keep promoting it. We don't mean to, but we do. And it's kind of like you were saying, Creighton, about, you know, it, you, you always want to ascend to that next level of service. But what I have found is when you, when you only are focused on the goal, when your goal becomes becoming like Bethel, becoming like Hillsong, becoming like whatever, when you, when you reach a status or whatever you have in mind for that, then what? Mm -hmm. Then you kind of look around and go, is this it? It's the Tom Brady moment, you know? And when I realized that it was kind of like, I need to stop focusing the goal, the vision of my planning and what I, what I think our church should do on, you know, being one of these other churches. And instead I want to base it off of the values. What kind of worshiping church do I want us to be? Who do I want us to be? And whenever I do that, it's like, well, I want us to be an authentic worshiping community. Okay. I probably will never, ever achieve that totally, but I can work towards that. And it gets away from this kind of like comparison game, like you were saying, Corey, you know, where now I'm having to come, well, what's authentic to us? You know, I can answer that question a lot better. And, and it helps to not be promoting that same sense of we've got to do it bigger and better than we did last week. Yeah. And uh, whenever we were in one of our intern meetings, something you said, you can't lead people where you haven't been yourself. And that's, if we want to be authentic worshipers, I mean, this is, we tell our team is like, we have to be that. Like we can't, can't assume other people are going to figure it out. And that's, I mean, Jesus did that. He didn't point and say, yep, get over there and <laughs> figure it out. Or most of the time stand at one end and said, all right, come, come here, <laughs> figure your own way out here. He was, he walked alongside of them and, and, uh, I, uh, I tell our team uh, that they are our worship leaders to to someone, even our congregation. We did a beginning of the year Sunday school at our church, and I, I got to teach for it and said that you are worship leaders to people in your life, that they look at me on stage and they're like, I can't relate with him. Like he's whatever, but the 16-year-old can relate with our 16-year-old cajon players. Like, oh, if he can worship, then I can worship. And if that, we've got a 70-year-old uh piano player this weekend mm -hmm. and she has a voice to a good portion of our congregation that wouldn't listen to me and um not because they're mean it's just it means more from her and so we we have to to lead ourselves i spent a lot of time in my first few months praying for more more team members and realized like i was neglecting the ones that i i did have and wasn't shepherding them so i've mm -hmm. i've stopped recruiting almost altogether and put it on on our team it's like i'm gonna pour into to who I have. And if God sends me more cool, if he doesn't, we'll, we'll be fine. And that's what we've, whenever team members say, you know, I can't 
can't make it this morning or something like that. I was like, in the nicest way possible, I was like, we don't, we don't need you. They don't need me. They don't need any, any of us, but you do have a, a role and try and kind of change your expectation for what, what that looks like. I don't know that none of us are needed. Like, I mean, on Sunday we're leading with just me on piano and it'll be really simple. Last week we had seven members on, on stage. And so it's, it's not that one or the other is the better. It's just that we invite God's presence in and it's a, a lot more simple than, than mm-hmm. I make it sometimes. <laughs> I've, I've told our team, well, uh, let me back up a step. Um, I'm going to ask you guys the same question. Is it okay if I kind of commandeer this for a minute? All of a sudden, I was no, like, yeah. "No, yeah, you're fine." <laughs> I thought, uh, well, Jeremiah is technically the host here, um, but uh, that's the that's the beauty of being a host. You just kind of sit back and let other people talk. <laughs> you and, drop you drop yep, the question. Yep. And, <laughs> yep. Well, here's here's a question. I guess I I'm going to ask you guys the same question that my dad asked one time to a worship team. How do you know you were a success mm-hmm. on Sunday mornings? I'm kind of cheating because I know the answer to you this. Know the, have I told I did, you the story? You have. Mm-hmm. I shared oh. with our team the week after. So okay, I won't well, then answer. you wait. You wait. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to hear from you guys first. Yeah, you told it to me too. So I actually <laughs> know the answer. You shared no, too I, much. I will, like, I actually. I repeat myself way too much. <laughs> I will answer the question. I really loved your dad's answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll let you talk about it in a second. Um, but I do think part of the answer, I think there's two parts besides the one that your dad said. One of them is we were successful when people saw more clearly themselves, God, other people. Um, that's a result of worship. Having worshiped is seeing more clearly. You know, I, I, I think about Luke 24 mm. when uh, the, the, the two are on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes to them and they, they don't even recognize him at first, but he walks with them and they start talking about scripture and then they, you know, get invited to this. He kind of invites himself over is what Jesus does. And then they sit down to the meal and it's when he, when he breaks the bread for the meal, that's when their eyes are opened and they see that it's, it was Jesus. And I think that they're, we, that that's got to be in our language of success when it comes to did someone worship? Well, do I see myself clearly if I'm still shaming myself, bashing myself, you know, guilt tripping myself, you know, right after I've worshiped, maybe I didn't worship. Um, the second part is it, it related to that. It's transformation. Am I becoming in the image of the thing that I'm worshiping, you know, what people revere, they resemble. And, and, uh, that's a litmus test for true worship, I think. Well, even in Luke 24, what do they do after finding out that it's Jesus? They go and tell everyone that there's a a revelation into a response Mm -hmm. and, Maybe my it's moved into my favorite book is The Worship Architect, which I've finished not. And it's and she talks about this Constance Cherry does that we start off services trying to start with a response. It's like right. I need like some people like I need to remember who God is. I need to like, I need Him to reveal Himself. We start off with a a song talking about giving our whole life to Christ. Like 
I don't know. There has to be something first. God, I mean, Jesus always reveals himself. And then because of that, there's the response from it. And yeah. I always use the analogy, um, since, you know, I have been in higher education at this point and, uh, how we get kind of sucked into this, uh, you know, deep dive. And sometimes we have to come back up for air, you know, like divers have to come back for air and that's, that's our foundation. Like we have to be constantly reminded of what we're rooted in. Otherwise we're going to dive too deep and it's, it's going to be, we're going to drown, you know, <laughs> get the bends. Yeah. I, you know, when I asked the question, how do you know your success? I mean, that I think it's a great question. And I, I certainly don't mean to, you know, imply that my dad's answer is the only correct answer to that, because I think that some of the things you guys touched on are also correct. And, um, but, you know, his answer, when he asked that question to this worship team, that no one had a response. You know, how do you know you're a success tonight leading worship? No one had a response. No one had a way of gauging effectiveness. And uh, he just said, well, here's how you know you're a success. If you worship, if you worship, you're a success. But I think that, Josh, kind of what you're leaning into is eyes opened. And um, Dustin Smith would say, you know, our job is to not just help people sing, but to help people see. Help them open their eyes to the majesty of God. Help them open their eyes to uh, the truth of who they are in Christ. Uh, and also their depravity without him. Um, just open open your eyes, you know. Um, and how we gauge effectiveness, how we gauge success, um, is very important, I think, as even, I know it sounds a little cliche, but it's just really important to this whole idea um, that we've been talking about. Well, and how we communicate that, because if you don't ever communicate it, then team members and congregations are going to pick up on something. And I'm sure that there were times where our team would gauge, well, it's, it's whenever we have people come forward or, right. and, and we would never say that. And I'm sure that band would never say that, but that's maybe how they viewed it. And even at times when, if I've viewed it that way, I'm sure our worship team picks up on that. Like, oh, it's not effective if that, if that didn't happen or if people weren't raising their hands or if people weren't singing or if we didn't sound good. And we have to communicate what a, a successful service looks like so that other people don't try to define it other ways or pick up on something that's so, we're not trying to mean. Something that I've told our team before is like, um, you know, you look at Acts 2 and, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll ask our team, I'll say, okay, well, today, did we, did we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Yes. Did we pray? Yes. Um, um, what, yeah, did we, did we devote ourselves to the breaking of the bread? Yes. Well, Nailed we, it. We, we did it, you know, we did it. Um, we've been doing the same thing for 2000 years and we did it. Yeah. And to jump back on the, the communication piece and actually into acts. Uh, so the, the scripture that actually led me to Christ, like that actually accept Christ in my life was acts four thirteen. Uh, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were common, uneducated people, they were astonished and realized that they had been with Jesus. So I think boldness is a part of our uh, communication piece. Like we we need to be bold in proclaiming the things that, that we proclaim and uh, that way people can see Jesus more clearly. You know, that's just a character trait that we need mm -hmm. to hold with us. And it's not a communicate at once. It's over and over yep. and over again. And that's the hard part is I... I unleash this awesome idea once 
or even a few times to make sure everyone listens. And then six months down the road, I, I, they're like, I don't remember what that is again. And I, I'm thinking about it all week, but our team members may not be. And just having to reinforce that constantly. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that a lot of what we're talking about is, I mean, they flow in and out of each other so much, you know, getting at that, the idea of, of being a host. That's part of what I want to talk about tomorrow in that second main session is just, we got to figure out what our role is. Yeah. And not just as worship leaders, but just as worshipers, you know, like, why do you go to church? It's, it's beyond just, well, cause the Bible tells me to, there's a reason the Bible tells you to go to church, you know, and, and it's not just about you. <laughs> it's, it's about other people. And, um, and that's why, that's why your presence is necessary there. And I think that, you know, the host stuff is, it's, it's making, it's helping to make safe spaces for people, um, helping people understand the gentleness of God with them, you know, to walk, to walk the journey. It takes so much grace. One of my, one of my mentors, uh, in seminary said one time, it takes, it takes more grace for someone to be sanctified than it does for them to be justified. Cause it's just over and over and over again. How many times does God have to be patient with us as we grow, as we learn, as we mature, as we develop? It's like, yeah, I can see that, you know, thank God for it. So I read an article recently, um, they were describing the, the way humanities are kind of brought up in secular universities today, uh, how there's these different levels of interpretation that we get into where we're dissecting the text and making it say things that we don't, that it doesn't say we're reading into things way too much. Um, when they're, the author's suggestion was that we need to get back to, um, historically reading a text, you know, what Ozark essentially taught all of us, right? Like the historical grammatical approach to interpretation, um, because it allows you to be more empathetic. You, you put yourself in the person's shoes, like, you know, what were these people thinking? How are they interacting in this situation? And because the humanities in our universities have, have, told that to our, our culture today. That's why our social media interactions are so, um, castigating and attacking. And, um, and so they they were suggesting, well, what if we, what if we be more empathetic? Like that could really change everything. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, but it's, it's true. Like, you know, and, and, and oh I know that's gosh. applying to textual interpretation, but if we apply that to cultural interpretation mm -hmm. as well, I mean, just empathy is, mm -hmm. is really what our culture needs. Mm -hmm. um, this is coming out of higher education. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Empathy. Yeah. Empathy. Yeah. The importance of empathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got to have a PhD to, to get that, <laughs> right. to get to that though. And everyone in the class was probably like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Mm. I suppose our sarcasm isn't very empathetic towards the <laughs> <Yeah>. professor. And <laughs> their point is proven right now. <laughs> Dang it. Yeah. Exhibit A. Yeah. And it brought me to, uh, like, you wouldn't think that the story connects as much, but to uh, the, the Garrison or Garrodine demoniac, however you, know, you want to say it, but uh, 
about how Jesus showed empathy, not only to the man, but to the demon. Like he allowed them to come out of him. They were begging three times in that story, you know, let me out, let me out. Don't kill me. You know, that sort of thing. And uh, Jesus showed empathy in that moment and allowed them to, to enter into the swine, you know, to jump off the cliff and he was kicked out of the area. But, uh, <laughs> but he, he did show empathy, you know, in that moment. And I, I think that's, uh, it's definitely something we can take into account. But. I think there's a, um, I think empathy is a good word. I think it, and it actually, it's not even just about other people. I, I had this moment, um, this was months and months ago now, but I was reading, uh, I was reading, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and I read the part that's where Jesus says, love your enemies. And for the first time I thought, you know, sometimes I think of myself as an enemy. What if Jesus is actually asking me to love myself? like in a healthy way and an empathetic way to, instead of trying to, to kill my demons, to actually embrace them, to love them, to um, accept them for who they are and what they are. And through that process of embracing it, actually overcoming it, mm-hmm. you know, that's what Jesus did with death. Right. That's what Jesus did with his enemy. He just embraced it. Okay, here you go. You can have me. And it was through the embrace that he actually overcame. So there's something, there's something about that empathy thing that it's, it is, it's resonating deeply. There's a groaning for it, I think, in people around our circles. When I, when I listen to people talk, that's something they want, but I don't think they know how to get at all. They don't know how to give it. If you can't get it, then you can't give it. <laughs> right. Well, in empathy, it also brings about reconciliation. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole purpose of that story that I was talking about was he, you know, allowed that, that person um, to go back into community. Like yeah. he was restored to community. Um, and Jesus told him to go back out into the community, but never said that once that he had to repent. Like he was fully healed in that moment, you know. Um, and, you know, later on he comes back to the area and... There, there's tons of people there for him. And it's probably because of that one person that he, you know, healed that went out into the the synagogues and, you know, proclaimed the goodness of, of Jesus and what he did. Um, I think that's even consistent with, you know, what Jesus said in his teaching about, you know, if, um, if someone has sinned, you go to the person face to face, confront them on that. If, if they don't repent, uh, take a couple others with you. If that doesn't work, take them before the church. And if that doesn't work, uh, he says, um, treat them like an outsider. And at first I think that can all kind of sound like forget you, you know, and we shove them away. But, but then I started thinking, well, how does Jesus treat outsiders? Look how Jesus treated outsiders. You know, he loved them. Kind of the embracing idea that you were talking about, Josh. Um, he did love them. He was empathetic to them, showed kindness to them, and um, to to woo them back. You know, that's how he treats enemies. Um, so I think that's consistent, that empathetic element in his teaching and in his modeling. How can I? How can um, 
our worship ministries be more empathetic to people? Don't we, we have a, for crying out loud, we got a platform and there's certainly this us, them thing that kicks in and, um, artists in general, sometimes in general can be a little prideful and uppity and, um, we're the experts. So we know how to do this whole worship thing. Just watch us follow and, and make sure to do it. Um, but how can we do a better job of truly showing empathy for the people that we lead and serve? I think some of it goes to what you're saying again about the host or is, is if someone wants to worship a certain way, it's not I'm trying to read between the lines of maybe their suggestions. Like if someone says, I think we need to do more hymns, they're saying it isn't necessarily that they like they think that's the only way to worship, but it's it's like, no, what they, they really want is to know I don't know that the way that they worshiped before and the way that their their family worshiped wasn't wrong. And if you can can communicate that well, it's just kind of trying to read between the lines for what people people want and they don't know that they they need. And you have to earn your voice with that off the stage to be able to implicate that on the stage. And that's the that's <laughs> I think it has to be one off the stage for us to be able to communicate that in an authentic way on it. I found I found uh, for me, that making making hardship and pain and difficulty normal has has opened up that empathy vein. When I share my own pain, when I share my own struggle from the platform, it it creates permission. It's it in it implicitly says it's okay to not be okay here, mm-hmm. and I think that's what, like we were talking about with social media and things like that. It's like what are people asking, like, and what are they seeing? It's like, is it okay to not be okay? Because it doesn't look like it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. Everywhere I turn, every screen I look at, every piece of uh, marketing or advertising I seen. See, everything's perfect. Everything's picture perfect. And if I let the real me out of here, is it going to be all right? Am I going to be able to belong? You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's that belonging words. It's an, it accompanies the empathy. But, you know, pain's the pain's the, the great leveler of of humanity. We all experience it. We all experience loss, and uh, I find it a I find it a good way to to quickly identify with people and for them to actually feel safe. Is is in sharing that. A few years ago, at preaching and teaching, Kyle Adelman was talking about that and said that authenticity is the new authority. That you can, and even Shane Wood talked about. It, you can say the right thing at the right time, but if you say it in the wrong way, you're still wrong. <laughs> and that we have to, it's not only what we say, but it's how, how we say it with them, which is, um, and that takes time. That's, that's not something that you can probably say once and it's fixed. Um, that's, I mean, that's Jesus walking with, with people. That's what we have to, that's what you sign up for when you become a, a, a Christian, you become a disciple is, is that long process, not the, 
Liquid。